Welcome to Buy the Bywater, a podcast on the Megaphonic Network. I'm Ned Raggett. I'm Oriana Schwint. I'm Jared Pekachek. And we're here to talk about all things J.R.R. Tolkien. His work, his inspirations and impact, creative interpretations in other media, languages, lore, ripoffs, parodies, anything we think is interesting. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to the 46th episode of By the Bywater. First one of 2023. Great to be back with you. Uh, our holiday break was much well-deserved and enjoyed, uh, aside from all the storms, but uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we're all surviving and we all got nice things and I hope and we hope you did too. And yeah, and uh, and that's all good. Oh, and uh, while I'm at it, a, a particular megaphonic thing. If you are a Patreon subscriber... Hint, hint. You can hear uh, Jared and I be part of a group megaphonic podcast that is only available to subscribers. Um, it is called The Greatest Podcast uh, Ever Recorded, and the, it is a joint mashup of a bunch of podcast hosts across megaphonic uh, to talk about something. Usually at this point, it seems to be the eye will be something cinematic, big, and forgotten is the best way to put it. And uh, the first one we did was uh, the, and where the name of the podcast comes from, is... Uh, called the the biblical epic from the mid-60s, The Greatest Story Ever Told, starring Max von Sydow, a host of cameos, and uh, the uh, the Arizona landscape standing in for Israel. And it is at both more ridiculous and more blah than you can imagine from this description. <laughs> so Jared and I had thoughts about it. So, yes, yeah. let's just say. So, Mariano, you, you weren't, weren't able to be part of that? I can't remember. What was no, the story No, that there? was, I had a obscene amount of work dropped on me the week between Christmas and New Year's that was like kind of a bummer that I was unable to carve out the like five hours needed <laughs> to, to do all this. Like, sorry, everyone <laughs> sure felt like it. Let me tell you. So anyway, so if you are a Patreon subscriber, you can subscribe, you can get access to that particular podcast as well as all the various bonus bits across many of the other podcasts. We don't really do that ourselves on this podcast because we just put everything in the episode because, Hey, that's who we are. <laughs> so uh, in any event, uh, there will be more uh, greatest uh, podcasts uh, coming up the series uh, sometime later in the year, irregularly, so keep an eye out for that. We we seem to have decided on the next one, but we'll keep it secret for now. Um, we shall see how it goes. Um, otherwise, uh, well, we have some news, we have some topics, we have some stuff to talk about. Let's just get right into it. So, Jared, please, with the news, go for it. Uh, an important note to start the new year with, the HarperCollins strike is still happening, and we intend to honor it as before. So yes, the new Tolkien book, The Fall of Numenor, has been out for a couple of months, but you're not going to hear more about it from us until we have a, a resolution. Full support, as ever, to the union. Mm. Um, news to us surfaced of an interesting creative project out of the UK, where for some decades, composer Paul Corfield Godfrey has been working on an operatic cycle of work drawing on the Silmarillion, with the Tolkien estate's full permission. Four recordings have been released over the previous few years and the last will be out later this year we'll have links to more information on this in our show notes including to an interview corfield did with the OneRing.net. finally for now amazon's announced a wide number of new additions to the cast of the second season of the rings of power most notably sam hazeldean who will be taking over the role of adar from joseph mall uh meantime directors charlotte branstrom who directed two episodes from the first season sana hamri and louise hooper will be splitting director duties between them that all said the showrunners remain the same so 
Good luck. <laughs> Survive. Mm-hmm. We we wish you all well. And yes, if it seems like we're why why pay attention after we trashed it, uh, you know, a couple of episodes ago. Look, it's going to be in the news. We can't not talk about it. And, we and it might be. It might. Get and it better. might improve. Like, yeah. you know? Maybe I don't know. I'm not, I have no hope of that, really. But it <laughs> might. You know. Let, let us be generous in spirit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it is post Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> they'll they'll tie up the showrunners, put them in a closet. And then do an actual good show and let them out for the premiere. (laughs) Showrunners emeritus. Yeah. (laughs) At large, showrunners at large. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Kick them upstairs, please. So, uh, the, uh, yeah, so that, that, uh, it's funny. This is the first that I've heard about this particular opera cycle. And I didn't realize that that's something that, uh, you know, the estate was good. I guess because those rights have never really come up that people can do that. Because theatrical rights, theatrical rights are part of, I should say theatrical, like, you know, theater, live theater rights were Mm. part of the original packaging of the stuff that Zance's company had a hold of all those years. Because they had to give the sign off to anything like the various theatrical productions on, like, you know, Camille of the Hobbit that have happened over time. So I guess operas don't, I don't know. Well, maybe the Silmarillion didn't come under that, I'm guessing, because it didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. As far as I can tell, I listened to a little bit of it, and it seems like it's not. It's not a stage performance. It's just a recording. So it's oh. musical. It's not. There's no performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't even from the bit I listened to. They didn't even get real musicians for it. It's like keyboard <laughs> and like synths. It's not. Yeah. They said sampled, not synthesized orchestra. And I'm like, you do what you can. I mean, yeah. you know, they, but uh, but I guess the singers are real. So hey. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no. I mean, it just the just the fact that apparently both Rainer Unruh and Christopher Tolkien had like signed off on this. I'm going like, this is interesting to me. So, you know, I, I don't recall them ever being so involved, let's say, with any other mm-hmm. general musical interpretation of Lord of the Rings that's out there. And, of course, there are a lot of them out there, you know, <laughs> thanks especially to power metal bands, often from Italy, but, um, but <laughs> or Scandinavia in general. Yeah. So, but still, though, interesting. It's sort of like, oh, sure, glad you're doing that. Of course, that did also lead to the discovery as we had a discussion on our Discord. Remember, join the Patreon. You can join that, too, yeah. uh, about, like, what the the Russian, weird Russian unofficial <laughs> adaptations but, like, that rock opera thing yeah. oh that, yeah like, that was really interesting yeah i mean tolkien is it's i don't want to say yeah folk art but like you know copyright free art shall we say doing something yeah. out there so credit to them and when it comes to the union and uh, harper collins and all that look come on guys you know we've said this before <laughs> we'll say it again you know uh it's actually been very reassuring to see various authors and agents and other folks uh basically continuing to support this uh per uh, the harper collins uh, union twitter feed and uh actions they're taking so this is good so uh we encourage everyone out there we certainly hope it gets resolved and in favor of the union uh sometime <laughs> in the near future uh we would like to talk about fall of newman uh, there's you know, we reading through it and all that, but uh, since we can't quite yet, that means we can dig back into other stuff that you can sort of get access to in other ways. So that has led to the focus of this month's topic, the alternate one that I had suggested at the end of the last episode. And so, with that in place, I will begin. <laughs> 
It's a sign of some weird form of antipathy out there that there are those who would complain that Tolkien only wrote quote-unquote children's tales without realizing that first, they're wrong in the face of it. I'd like to see what parent out there would think Eldarian and Orendus would be their idea of a good night's read before bedtime for their small ones. And second, as time has shown again and again, what can be termed children's literature, whether a My First Read book or the sheer range and depth of young adult fiction, is now an intensely powerful, celebrated, and resonant corpus of material in many languages. The combination of mass market media, starting particularly with printed books, translations from around the world from one language into another, and the sheer delight of such literature at its unquestioned best, the more so because there is obviously no one generic approach to it, means that anyone who thinks we're trying to be either dismissive or showily modest about Tolkien's work when it came to children's literature can, of course, pack sand. What is more accurate is to note that Tolkien himself was a product of his particular time and place, and that he was working in what had become a well-established tradition of children's literature in a British context in particular. While there had been books for young readers of one form or another beforehand, the Victorian era was the first real explosion of interest in this field, and he himself as a young reader, per Humphrey Carpenter's biography, was familiar with many now-long-established classics provided by his mother before her own untimely passing. His feelings were not always positive. He enjoyed Lewis Carroll, but not Robert Louis Stevenson or Hans Christian Andersen. But he most especially enjoyed the work of George MacDonald and the series of books of tales presented by folklore researcher Andrew Lang. It's perhaps no surprise that both figures had a role to play in his own creative life in later years. As we've talked about in previous episodes, with Smith of Wooten Major growing out of an unfinished preface about MacDonald's work, and Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, itself often a pointed critique about making such stories too sweetly cloying for readers, originally delivered as an Andrew Lang memorial lecture. Tolkien himself exhibited a clear self-consciousness about his own understanding of what he wanted to create in the vein of imaginative fiction and art of any stripe. His first formally published work was poetry, but the infamous poem Goblin Feet was regarded by him with horror in later years. But arguably, the 20 years between the Book of Lost Tales and the start and then shift in tone of working on The Lord of the Rings was in ways Tolkien at his peak creatively writing work that essentially had children as the intended audience even while he continued to develop and return to his greater Middle-earth legendarium with all its romance and deep tragedy. The Hobbit is, of course, the most well-known of these efforts, in its original form a related outgrowth of that legendarium, while not being an intrinsic part of it, as yet, with a narrator who is much more clearly a character as much as anyone else in the story, with asides, observations, and a sense of pleasing an unseen audience. For Tolkien, this audience was very much to hand. His children who were eager listeners of many creative tales and stories that he came up with to amuse them, for private pleasure rather than for a perceived market, with The Hobbit being the tipping point where what was wholly private eventually became public. It allowed him to indulge in all sorts of things for his own amusement, as much as for his kids. He was very arguably a true master of dad jokes, as well as showcasing a generally wide-ranging interest in all sorts of yarns for his sons and daughter, something which makes you sit up a bit when you remember that due to his father's early death, he himself had little memory of something similar in turn. The Father Christmas Letters is arguably the most personal of these by default, while there are mentions of unrecorded stories, such as the dastardly Bill Stickers and his rival Major Road Ahead, as well as the early <laughs> tales of a character named Tom Bombadil, based on a favorite doll of one of Tolkien's sons, Michael. It was another toy of Michael's, a small lead toy dog, that was lost on a family vacation to a coastal Yorkshire resort in the mid-1920s. That was the origin of the story that eventually became Rover Random. 
An episodic yarn, accompanied by some illustrations, of a real dog-turned-toy-dog's adventures in the world, on the moon, and under the ocean, encountering three various kinds of bemusing wizards, talking seagulls, great white dragons, and giant sea serpents, not to mention dogs much like himself, if of a different kind. A sweet, if sometimes surprisingly emotional ramble, but with a well-deserved happy ending, in ways it's not only one of Tolkien's most immediate real-world stories, thanks to various asides about English society of that time, but also contains more than a few connections to that larger legendarium that was always there for him and seemingly all he did, whether as source or as reference point. In contrast, Mr. Bliss is a somewhat slighter but still amusing tale, allegedly growing out of Tolkien's own frustrations with when he first bought a car in the early 1930s, though possibly already kicking around as a basic story idea some years earlier. Much more heavily illustrated than Roverandum, with its key manuscripts at points incorporating its drawings fully with the text, it's placed in a never-never English country setting where the titular character, owner of tall hats and, but of course, a jeer rabbit he wants to keep hidden from others, partially so he doesn't have to pay a license for it, <laughs> sets out one day to buy a car. To say that shenanigans result is an understatement, and if by default one can't help make some comparisons to Kenneth Graham's classic The Wind in the Willows and The Misadventures of Mr. Toad, this packs in a lot over its short length, from three bears with an eye for eating and pretending to be ghosts, two donkeys doing somersaults into a car to a family of soup-eating squires who love nothing better than to have their meals al fresco, at least until a whole bunch of people literally crash in on them. Both Roverandum and Mr. Bliss were submitted by Tolkien to Alan and Unwin as follow-ups to The Hobbit, with Rainer Unwin providing a review of the former for his publisher father, as he had for The Hobbit itself. But when that book turned out to be a true hit, and Tolkien was asked to write more stories of Hobbits, history took its course from there, with both stories first appearing posthumously. Mr. Bliss in 1983, and Roverandum in 1998. Both have been republished since, with the latter most readily found, along with other instances of Tolkien's shorter fiction, in the Alan Lee illustrated anthology Tales from the Perilous Realm. If by default both of these stories have their fame precisely because of Tolkien's sheer stature, they show interesting sides of his literary gift, neither being sweet and sappy stories as such, more with a kind of ridiculous anarchy in the best sense, at once well-mannered and wildly rollicking, where things happen just because they can. And why not? So we'll stop there because it's time to open up the floor. So, were either you guys familiar with these two? I, I think not was the uh, thing? No. <laughs> I had seen, so I have the book, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Artist and Illustrator by mm. uh, Wayne Hammond and Christina Skoll, which is a fantastic book mm. if you're interested in this kind of thing, which obviously I am. <laughs> um, and it has all of the Roverandum illustrations that he did in it. So that was my, that was all I knew about Roverandum. And it had some Mr. Bliss in it as well. But this is my first time reading the two of them. There you yeah. yeah. Ditto. And, uh, you know, in some respects, you know, they're, they're quick and easy and they're intended for that young audience, no question about it. But there's yeah. a lot going on in them. <laughs> it kind of, I, was, kind of... I was actually surprised by how long Roverandum is. Yeah, I, guess... I thought it was going to be so much shorter. I thought it was going to be much shorter, but I was like, oh, oh, there's my, I, I like, no, I, I didn't novella. start reading it until yesterday. <laughs> I was like, hey, oh, hey. <laughs> right, right, right. Got it. I, I loved Roverandum. It's um, great. My my big bombshell of this episode, though, is that I hated Mr. Bliss. Oh, okay. I <laughs> hated it. <laughs> Go for it. What, what didn't you like about it? Well, part maybe part of it is, <laughs> if maybe you don't follow me on social media, you missed this news. I did get a concussion over the break. 
So I was maybe not in the literal right headspace for twee little adventures of stuffed bears and a man with tall hats and all of that. But it was like, you know, the guy guy isn't really big on structure in general. He doesn't (laughs) plot the most tight narratives ever. And that's fine. It works when it's just a travelogue. But Mr. Bliss is just one damn thing after another. And none of it, to me, to me is actually interesting. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like it's coming from the same head space on his his part that gave us goblin feet, where it's like mm-hmm. kind of twee and cutesy and like stuff just kind of happens. And it's like, oh, I named the, the three bears after my kids' bears, which is, I guess, cute. But also it's like <laughs> the bears aren't Roasted. cool. They're Roasted. just bears. Like, yeah, no, I, I really, really did not. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like how, how miserable nearly everybody in Mr. Bliss is. I mean, you know, they're all, they're all sorts of venal, if you ask I me. Found, I found Mr. Bliss himself a very uh, uncompelling protagonist. Well, he's, yeah, he has no characteristics aside from having hats. <laughs> like, I did, I did like the bear. I could actually see this being a very fun bedtime, so- series of bedtime stories, I guess, yeah. where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, now we're going to have this little trifle about mm-hmm. you know mr bliss uh, running into the the lady with the cabbages yeah and there's no innuendo in that statement by the way right. that's, yeah. that's just that's literally true <laughs> I, I could not help but for for people who have watched avatar the last airbender i could not help but but think of <laughs> my the cabbages. my cabbages yeah. guy yeah. exactly well, you put your finger on something that definitely irritated me about mr bliss and not about Random, which is that the protagonist is just kind of a name yeah with no real traits like he wants a car and then the car vanishes from the narrative for huge chunks or it felt like huge chunks to me again reading it with brain damage i don't recommend that in general but especially not when you have to talk about something a, a later tbi on. doesn't make for be- for really great yeah. reading yeah um but he doesn't like people people talk about frodo as an example of a blank protagonist mm-hmm. but frodo absolutely isn't he makes yeah. decisions all the time that drive the story forward he has his own viewpoint he's doing things that matter and mr bliss kind of just causes chaos without actually having any feelings about it exactly he doesn't choose any of this he doesn't even seem to have reactions to the accidents aside from the pictures where he's like oh my god i hit somebody and that's like okay (laughs) yeah but he's not doing anything he doesn't move anything forward it it felt like again dramatic Mm -hmm. brain injury (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Setting that aside, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, the, yeah the, the, I mean, uh, dare I say the the I don't know what we call the grape, but I mean, this is a story without a moral. It's a trifle. <laughs> it's just it's just a trifle. It's it is just, a trifle, it's, but because it's it is just one thing after another. It's cotton candy. There, there has to be some kind of for me some kind of through line, whether it's mm. the protagonist mm. being like Alice and Alice in Wonderland, just kind of hating whatever's going on. Like that's fine. <laughs> that's totally valid. He doesn't even do that. He's just like, oh, I guess I'm going to go to somebody's house for lunch. And then it stops being about him for pages and pages and pages. <laughs> so, like, why is he the viewpoint character? And anyway, anyway, <laughs> it, it, it's it's one of those things, you know, I, I clearly maybe have a little more fondness for, for you guys, but I, I was. 
was charmed. I was charmed. That's fine. I I know that this is like a relative sort. I mean, this was something, you know, this is something we were never going to, frankly, dedicate a full episode to for fairly obvious (laughs) reasons. So so squeezing it in here as far as our grounds for discussion there. And I mean, the the thing thing that sort of struck me again reading about is that basically it's sort of like, you know, the sheer pettiness was sort of like, I like you. No, I like you. No, wait, I don't like you. No, I'm going to eat your cabbages. Now I'll eat your food. And the giraffe is sort of like, hi, I'm random. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, it's and a, very adorable. Yeah, very, <laughs> the the yes, rabbit. Yeah. You could see, uh, you could see that being a character. You know, Marcel the shell with shoes on, like you know, a little friend here, and I've got a rabbit you know, sort of towering over them, so or something like that. So uh, it was a good movie, though that. Uh, but um, but uh, yeah, and then of course the line about the rabbit. Um, well, Jared, uh, how did you put it when you noticed it yesterday? <laughs> oh, oh, right. There's a line about like he he basically eats his way through Mister Bliss's house. At one point, it is unconscionable how little the giraffe actually appears because the giraffe is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there's a line about him. He's he's munching some carpet, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Language Incredible. has marched on <laughs> since 1920, whatever. Between that and teleporno, I'm telling you, it, it, is, told, it told, is amazing. Teleporno is unforgivable because he definitely was aware of Greek vocabulary. <laughs> munching carpet is like, okay, probably he didn't know that one. Yeah, I, I do I, wonder when that idiom sort of took on the meaning that it that it currently has today. Let's Google it just right now. <laughs> just, just. Well, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> At least not right this second. So, but uh, but I mean, uh, stepping back a bit, uh, maybe less. Uh, sort of, I mean, what do you think? Um, in, in terms of we've talked a bit about, you know, the art. Some of the illustrations were random, of some of which are truly fantastic. But Mister Bliss, of course, is much more just you know sketch. But still, I think it's some like you know some of the interests of like you know the forest at night and things like mm-hmm. this, and oh, how he that uses was a the beautiful giraffe. illustration. I, I found yeah, I found I found them very charming. Like my dad has not a, a ton of skill as an artist. But like he would draw funny little figures, uh, and it reminded me very much of of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that context is like, oh, oh my god! Like you, you know, you can see that like you can see spots where he where Tolkien has trouble <laughs> with yeah. certain certain figures, and and is just yeah. doing his best. And it's I, the only word I can think of for it is is just charming. Uh, yeah, and it, that does a lot for me. Yeah, no, I like the one illustration where they're all like sitting around having a tea at a pub and all that. And the illustration says, and this is where the car and actually all that is, but I don't want to draw it. I'm too tired. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, That's <laughs> yeah. classic medieval marginalia right there. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's over there. So. Yeah. And it was funny. I mean, looking at it and going, there's a lot of things in here that are like, of course, he's the one who's doing this, like facsimiles of receipts and things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the like the plot arc being sort of like the Hobbit where this protagonist like ends up on an adventure and then comes back home to chaos, chaos. in his home and yeah. has to like pay a bunch of bills and stuff. It's like and there's yeah, a boffin this is, in there. There's a boff, there's a there's literally a gaffer gamji in here. Yeah. Like, there is, yeah. Always. <laughs> yeah. I like I I enjoyed a lot of it in a sense, but I don't overall it's just like I understand your literary critiques. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, don't blame me on that. So anyway, so Mr. Bliss, there it is. It's a trifle. Oh, he, he amused himself, and it's quick. And if you find it and enjoy it, there you go. So, But this way we can say we've, you know, accurately talked about it. So, well, I would have, I mean, I know you're trying to segue, but like really quickly, I would have enjoyed it more, I think, if it had been like the Father Christmas letters where it's like, mm. here is one of the events. 
presented mm. on its own. Right, right. And you get that as its own thing rather than like turning a page and turning a page and turning. And it's like just kind of one thing after another, but getting it in doses the way Father Christmas Letters is structured, mm. which is like it is almost that way already, but he just didn't tell it that way. Right. Like right. that would have yeah. made it, I, it would have improved it so much more for me rather than being this really, really shaggy <laughs> series of events. Yes. Yeah. And indeed, like I indicated, the wind in the willows, it is not. So, no. Um, no, no. No, it's not. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but something that has a wonderfully powerful, I don't want to say resonance, it's a different sort of thing, is Rover Random. And it is, yeah. we're talking about in much more detail. It is a it is a remarkable story, as I indicated. Uh, uh, Jared, you sounded very taken by it. So, uh, your initial thoughts? Oh, I loved Rover Random. <laughs> I like Oriana. I didn't read it until yesterday, but that was because my library didn't give me the book until yesterday. So I'm bitter about that. But anyway, it's so gorgeous. Like there are mm. like when he's the whole sequence on the moon is like mm-hmm. top tier children's literature where they're like everything on the moon is sort of reversed from the way it is on Earth. But that's not the narr- the narration never points that out. You're just left to like luxury it and like the sheep are the size of bugs and the spiders are obviously because it's Tolkien the size of like right. houses. <laughs> and then on the dark side of the moon, everything like the sky is now white, whereas on the white side of the moon, it's black. And there's these like gardens where children come when they dream and it's the moon is colorless except for like little glimmers of like sparks of things in the woods that you never i don't think they're quite i think they're insects maybe but they're not really explored they're just there it's so much so many grace notes to mm-hmm. this setting and it's so it's so beautiful yeah <laughs> the rest of it is is fine but like the moon part is what really really makes this for me <laughs> and it is a significant chunk of the book like it's it's yeah. not like it's one scene and everything else is whatever but like yes rover Adam is really good <laughs> <laughs> and oriana your initial thoughts it it reminded me a lot of the velveteen rabbit and i <laughs> was, yeah. I, I was <laughs> somewhat derelict in my in my research uh on on this when did do we know when exactly this was kind of worked on? Oh, uh, well, this came out uh, in there. Yeah, we'd have to I'd have to double check on the publication date for Velveteen Rabbit. Uh, this was originally inspired, as I mentioned, by a trip that was in the mid-20s. And the final form of this, um, at least as typed up, uh, and that is probably a big difference between that and Mr. Bliss. Mr. Bliss just seems to be Mr. Bliss and there's a story, whereas this was something he worked on for one way or another over a decade, casually, just as something mm-hmm. that he had sort of teased out the idea and worked Worked on it and then submitted it in '36, I believe. So uh, okay, so, so Velveteen Rabbit was in the was like 1922 was when it was yeah. published as a book. There may or may not have been influence. No, there was definitely something in the air though around that time. Like there's a right. lot of children's literature. Anthropomorphizing like toys feels very much like it was in the water, and I, I think it's just kind of natural because children do that. Like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, me and my younger siblings, we we each had our own room, which was amazing. Um, but we each room, each child's room was a kingdom of its own, and oh. all of the stuffed animals, you know, were within that kingdom, and they all had, you know, they had like a national identity almost. And well, there let's would be scrap wars. the rest of the episode and talk about this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there would be wars between the kingdoms. Like my my brother's room, he was really into elephants and and whatnot, so his had like a more jungly. 
sort of theme. And so there would be conflicts, uh, which is kind of weird that like we couldn't think of, you know, something other than like, but like, you know, and there was peacetime adventures as well. And so I, I think it's it's just natural for children to anthropomorphize their their toys. Um, and that's a very fertile storytelling angle and it's and everyone seems to have the same sort of toy story idea of the toys can't move when you're looking at them but they can when you aren't like every every (laughs) children's story involving toys that move has that rule and i think that's fascinating that that everyone kind of reproduces that yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, how else are they going to do it? Like, you can't, <laughs> you can't see them moving. Like, they've got to move that way. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought of toys like that when I was little. I was, they were like, oh, really? Yeah, they definitely had their own identities. Mm-hmm. Like, I never mm-hmm. named any of them because I was like, well, that's not. It may not be their name. Oh wow! Like, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. I don't know their name. They can't tell me their name, so I'm not going to give them a name because it could be incorrect, and I don't want to call them by the wrong name. <laughs> wow. But I never thought of them moving. It was, yeah, mm-hmm. it was more like, I don't know, totemic is the right word, yeah. but like they were entities that didn't speak or move or whatever, but they were definitely personified. They were, mm. Like they just sort of sat around, and that was fine. So, then, But they definitely had their own internal life. They had their own personalities mm. that I was vaguely aware of, mm. but I didn't want to commit to anything on them because I didn't want to assume. <laughs> wow. Sure. That's very, very... <laughs> Very thoughtful of young Jared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of my own examples when I was a kid with things like this because I had a few specific, you know, toys and things that I sort of could have anthropomorphized, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe that just means I'm a freak. I can't say. <laughs> so, but it probably just sort of shandled in different things and sort of like, you know, it. Something that comes to mind uh, with uh, with. Tolkien's own approach is they talking about how, and this is from Carpenter's biography and, and uh, other comments elsewhere about how when he was, you know, he was young, he and his brother Hillary would, uh, you know, dream up their own little stories. And I think there were mentions too of various uh, little things where they would have similar sort of things. And also, of course, that's where Tolkien first played around with his idea of creating a language, and we all know mm-hmm. where that led. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what's interesting, I think, is that he took that sort of gift for for you know, t- taking something and spinning spinning something out of it. I mean, the circumstances of the creation of Rover Random are interesting to me because uh, it's basically, it's it's kind of the same way that Tolkien, like, you know, is much in something like Lord of the Rings, where he creates Galadriel, or he creates Gonbury Gon, or creates these characters like, oh, wait, what have I done? Who is this? And what's their story? Yeah, and they then appear. Right, yeah. But I also see, like, it, you know, I have both been the child that has has lost the toy and also been around children who have lost the toy and mm-hmm. consoling the child who has lost the toy is a difficult thing to do and mm-hmm. it's just really wonderful to imagine Tolkien poor child has lost this <laughs> toy and is inconsolable and you are coming up with a way and through through telling probably like just you know a little story about like oh he's it's all right he you know nipped at a a wizard's trousers and and (laughs) now he has to go to the moon and and then all of a sudden it turns into this whole thing and it it is pretty joyful to think about that process like uh, you know i'm sure I don't know about the details, but but that seems like a very plausible way of of this happening. <laughs> yeah. 
I think I think that is part of part of the joy of it too. Is that Rover is a for all that we have him as a very you know just this little bit of him as a protagonist, just a short little story. Is such an engaging protagonist. He's very yeah. he's very relatable. Um, I like the fact that you could you could theoretically take take the story look at one way. You know, a rude little dog learns manners and is rewarded at the end. But that's not really what happens. It's more no. sort of like it's more sort of like he realizes oh, this is something. He's more apologetic as he goes by and he tries to work things. But the story. Doesn't beat you over the head like it's so like you know the equivalent of the good fairy doesn't come it's like see you've learned to be nice now you mm-hmm. don't get that instead it's more a matter of oh i maybe shouldn't have done that you should do better and then you're dealing with personalities that especially what's wonderful is is that if you're a kid and dealing with these very very distinct personalities all of whom are very different and very weird <laughs> and all that it's like you can get all he gets along with the moon dog and the mer dog very nicely I, I love the bits and details talking about how the immediate mode is trash talking and tokens basically saying, of course, they'd be great friends like five minutes yeah. later and mm-hmm, things like that. Mm-hmm. A wonderful detail. But uh, how all the, the wizards are all such such weird characters is the best way yeah. to put them. I mean, the sense of their own agendas that everyone kind of <laughs> loves and hates everyone else and they're always getting in arguments or more. It's kind of, it's a very, very kid's eye view of, oh, is this how adults deal with each other? They're all so <laughs> petty and ridiculous and it's wonder. I just love how bad Pam um, uh, with yeah. Ar- Artaxer- Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, yeah. 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 I love how bad he is at his job and <laughs> how Tolkien doesn't try and... And he has, like, and... bad performance reviews. Like, that's yes. an actual plot point. <laughs> he it's gets amazing. complaints all the time. He's no good. Like, uh, you know, and they're like, well, you know, not not a bad guy, but we you gotta go. And we, yeah, we need like, a more oh, competent man, wizard. <laughs> We're not sugarcoating this at all. Sometimes adults are just bad at their jobs. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It, it, it's it's wonderfully it, it's earnest, and you know, and the and the viewpoint shifts too. Is like we're always seeing it, of course, through Rover's eyes, and we get things like you know a very dare I say Toy Story moment of when he's like you know put up in the Toy Club and yeah. sort of like you know it's inevitably these days, of course, after the past you know couple of decades, that's how one frames the story in your head, thanks to that sequence of movies. But uh, still, getting that that kind of viewpoint of it from from that particular time is just really interesting, and just you know the wonderfully absurd conversations like. There's a part where he's talking with a shrimp. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> and, and, and and I love how there isn't some sort of bonding moment. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah. Well, you're gonna do this. Well, you're gonna be boiled. <laughs> yeah. Like, we'll turn red with anger. Yeah. Like he doesn't. Well, I feel like at one point he's like, well, you're gonna get eaten anyway, so I don't have to be nice to you. Like it's yes. that kind of it's that vibe. Like he doesn't he doesn't have to be their friend because they're already dead. <laughs> yeah. Their their fate is set. Like it's 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 lovely. It's sort of it just the the humor really goes all the place. What is interesting, and this is kind of you know this is a way maybe to you know sort of step start to incorporate this into broader discussions of Tolkien as a children's book writer. You could argue is how the narrator here does have similarities to the narrator of the Hobbit in a way. It's mm-hmm. sort of stepping outside with the sort of editorial comments and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, um, it's it's clearly a mode that he enjoyed and knew how to do. It's something that you get a sense of what Tolkien was like actually telling these stories when he when he puts those moments in there and as a side i absolutely love you could say the more when i say adult moments it's a classic aside to like you know the older readers or listeners whoever might be out there you know the equivalent of you know the modern day pop culture reference to something from like the 80s that the adults and the audience will laugh at and the kids are like because they were just born like five years ago (laughs) but uh like one of my favorite ones is about halfway through the the the, uh, because like one one great 
bit about uh, okay for everybody. One great bit about uh, one of the wizards is the man in the moon. Uh, perhaps mm-hmm. perhaps Tolkien's most recurring character across all his you know, all his uh, creative endeavors. The more I think about it, and this one uh, gets the mail from Earth via seagull, which is a delightful touch, and uh, gets deliveries. and uh, And there's a bit where a part where Roverandom is on the moon, and he's got his uh, little friend, uh, his uh, friend, the other Rover. Oh yeah, all the other dogs the encounter named Rover, which is a wonderful running joke. I love that. It's just sort of like, well, you can't, you're the first, and that's why he's Rover Random. Um, and it's talking about sometimes the dogs even dare to go spider baiting, biting webs and setting free the moonbeams, and flying off just in time while spiders threw lassos at them from the hilltops. What a wonderful image. <laughs> so, But all the while, Rover Random was looking out for Postman Mew and News of the World. And this is where I'll say to listeners, if you do not know that one of the chief English tabloid papers for many, many years starting back in the 1800s and only wrapped up fairly recently, was called literally News of the World. So that's the joke here. So Rover Random was looking out for Postman Mew and News of the World, parenthesis, mostly murders and football matches, as even a little dog knows. But there is sometimes something better in an odd corner. What a comment. <laughs> what a random <laughs> Just And he has comments like that throughout about uh, that are there these little very tolkien jabs about ah, the stupid modern world I'm in. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the the the, the ginger beer bottles on the tops of Mount Snowden and other things like that. And, and, and as Oriana was pointing out, the, uh, the, the Artaxerxes and his you know, particular failures as a civic servant uh, down for the, uh, in the Mer Kingdom in the ocean <laughs> and everything that happens there. I just I love like the, how the, elaborate the man, that The man in the moon, like, immediately just throws most of his mail away. Yeah. And, and that's really fun to me. It's like, oh my god, this is, this is like, you know, almost a hundred years ago. And it's the same, the same thing. Time is a flat circle. I'm pretty sure the scene is like he's like ripping open the envelopes, just tossing stuff, and the seagull is like trying to pack everything back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so funny. (laughs) Just trying to catch him up, going, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Yeah. Oh, it's so delightful, and uh, and uh, I, I I I can't even pronounce his name because it's such an awesome name. But I'm going to try to do this: Samathos Samathides. Samath, but yeah. like he insists on pronouncing the P in front yeah, of it, and it's like this does wonderful not running because joke. he knows him well enough that he can be like, eh, he doesn't deserve that P. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I, I just love this conception of a wizard, which is basically Tolkien riffing on the idea of basically seeing, like, you know, a pile of sand on the beach with a couple of sticks coining out of it and imagining, oh, those are his ears. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he's asleep under there. <laughs> I'm like, what a beautiful idea. <laughs> no wonder he was so creative. <laughs> I love that he's like, like he could unenchant Rover, but he's like. I don't know if I really want to pick a fight right now with Artaxerxes. Like, I'm not, we're not mad at each other. I'm not going to. Right. Things are going good. We're not going to do that. Yeah. Like, you can go have an adventure on the moon until he cools down and then we can see what we can do about that. Like, I think that's so, I don't know why that's so amusing to me, but like, I think another children's book would have him be like, yes, I'm the kind and generous magician who will undo your enchantment. And then that's like, okay, cool. But this is like, no, it might not be polite. I don't. Mm, I it's don't a very yeah. it's it's very like it, it is engaging fully with adult dynamics in yeah. a way that like yeah. children, children can understand like, oh, I don't want to like I don't want to start beef again. Yeah. <laughs> like kids do understand that you're kind of it's like being at somebody else's house and the rules are a little bit different and mm-hmm. you don't. You're like, wait, you keep your shoes on in the house. OK, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that sense of arbitrariness is great. It's 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 not arbitrariness as it's not arbitrariness in the storytelling necessarily, even though it is very an episodic story. I mean, essentially, if anything, and um, you know, the, this is just left to me just now as we were talking about it, the cycle of the things. It's almost Baron Munchausen is what it is. You start on the yeah. Earth, you end up on the Moon, you come back mm. and things like that. You know, it's like it's almost that in miniature. It's sort of like ramble, but but uh, but it's not really per se an arbitrary story compared to the real sense. Of or I'm saying these adult dynamics, the arbitrariness of adult dynamics. You can't do that. Uh. You know, and that and that is a and that is a wonderful wonderful thing to translate, and it says something about well, Tolkien's own experience, maybe as a parent, but maybe even as a kid. I'm sure, you know, when he was growing up, he encountered that more than once, especially yeah. given, of course, the tragic circumstances of his parents dying early and sort of like yeah. you know being shunted from one thing to another, and like having to deal with different authority figures mm-hmm. in vastly different spaces, mm-hmm. right, and right, adjust to that, and like learn to be polite to them, I guess, yeah, <laughs> like Rofrid. <laughs> Yeah, and like some are some like the man in the moon are you know gregarious, although clearly sort of like you know just sort of like off in their own plane, and they occasionally deal with you. And other t- and the other times they're just sending you go out and play in the yard. I mean, it's essentially right? they'll, they'll feed you, but yeah. like you gotta you gotta like learn to manage your own self. Basically. Right. Yeah. And if you need to get somewhere, like when they do visit the dark side of the moon, you just sort of like, you got to go in. Oh, I don't want to. He just kicks him in and meets him down later. It's yeah, like, he throws him into a shaft that leads through the center of the moon. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and, and like when he arrives there, there's this huge evil spider out there. Of course, it's like, yeah, get away. You know, and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and I do love the bits of adventure. I mean, the whole sequence with the great white dragon is a wonderful yeah. bit of rollicking adventure in the middle of it yeah. all. And a really good one, too. Um, um, I, I don't know since if you were reading the tales of the uh, if you were reading the Alan Lee illustrated version, let me show you the. Uh, although I'm sure Jared, you've seen it, the illustration, the ink illustration of uh, Oriana hasn't seen it. I'm holding I, it up I for haven't. her right now. I hope. The, yeah. But uh, that is the oh, delightful. Uh, oh, yeah. that's very similar to the like Smaug uh, mm-hmm. illustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of like trial runs for the Hobbit going yeah. on here. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That illustration. I love that illustration so much. It's very like the mountains are very detailed and very flat. Mm-hmm. And the dragon mm-hmm. is like, you know, classic sinuous Tolkien dragon. What's very funny to me is that the, the Hammond and skull book where they're talking about the rough random illustrations, they're like, this one's not as successful. And I was like, what are you looking at? Wow. Like, this <laughs> thing is great. great. Like, it's not supposed to. They're they're digging it for not being like three dimensional enough or something like that. And uh, it's like, no, okay. it looks great. Like, <laughs> I've met them both uh, many years ago. They're nice people, but yeah, we'll differ on that point. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, no, go on, Jared, please. Well, I, I don't know if I really had a thought after that, but like his illustrations for Rover Random are overall really good. And I was disappointed by the Alan Lee one, which is yeah. weird because I love Alan Lee. But he's not the right illustrator for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's a little too realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not what you want for this. Or no, I, it's like certainly it's, not it's what taking, I would want. Yeah. Like it's sort of in the real world. Like they go to real places. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They mention real places too. Like Artaxerxes is from Persia. Like that kind of yeah. thing. But it still is a very different reality from ours. And you don't want the illustrations to be that kind of realistic. And I think this is one case where he's the ideal illustrator for his own stories, which isn't always true. Right. Right. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Very much agreed. <laughs> And we we get more of the moon than the the end of the ocean, but the other ocean parts are really nice. The the cover, I love those. Yeah, I I'm yeah. A, I'm an ocean person, so like that 
sort of thing is just catnip to me. Yeah. I, I love the, I love the, the thousands of sisters. And so it's sort of like, you know, like he <laughs> the, the king of the sea can spare one of his daughters right. when he yeah. has an yeah. exile. Cause he's like, I've got others. Yeah. I've got all these things here. Yeah, all those, I, all those. I love her life. I love that. She's just like, you know, her husband is a bit of a gem. This is a, Another running Tolkien thing yeah. of like marrying a woman who's so much cooler than you are. <laughs> and she's just like everyone loves her and like no you know, they move to the land and, <laughs> and she's just so cool that no one points out like, hey, she has a you tail. got a tail. <laughs> You're a mermaid. She's hyper competent. She's like she's so much cooler than he is, and it's like Wow, she must really love him if she's kind of right with all of it. <laughs> it has to be true. So, what is the uh, just? I I love the uh, just. I I, I mean, here's, here's some of the pleasures of language from that whole sequence. So, this is where Artaxerxes, having screwed everything up, has been told to like go away. And he basically sort of like he goes. He basically goes and destroys, decides to destroy all his magic and all that. He just sort of like ah. And this is a case where Tolkien just going with the going with the lists and all that. But it works because he has such great joy. The language and vocabulary. So he went into the workshops and collected all his paraphernalia, insignia, symbols, memoranda, books of recipes, arcana, apparatus, and bags and bottles of miscellaneous spells. He burned <laughs> all that would burn in his waterproof forge. I love the idea of a waterproof forge under yeah, the water. That is just stuff under the sea. Yeah, the yeah exactly. <laughs> and the rest he tipped into the back garden. Extraordinary things there took place there afterwards. All the flowers went mad, and the vegetables were monstrous, and the fishes that ate them were turned into sea worms, sea cats sea cows, sea lions, sea tigers, sea devils, porpoises, dugongs, cephalopods, manatees, and calamities, or merely poisoned. <laughs> and phantasms, visions, bewilderments, illusions, and hallucinations spread so thick that nobody had to put any peace in the palace at all, and they were obliged to move. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, not, not, not someone deliberately putting a curse, like, he's yeah, not yeah. deliberately putting a curse on the, but, like, again, he's so bad of a wizard that he's just... Like, this is somebody else's problem now. I'm going to throw all this garbage out. Like, I don't clearly don't need it anymore because I'm a yeah. good wizard. Like, he's just a little bit vindictive, but... Castle is too haunted for yeah. for anyone to live there anymore. <laughs> I love the the way that magic kind of, sort of works occasionally in this book, where it's like, it's almost always a physical object. Like, the man in the moon is always, the mm. man in the moon is always uncorking spells. Yeah, or yeah, like, there's yeah. this where he's... Where, Artaxerxes is just burning a bunch of stuff that is like magical on its own. And there's very little, aside from Artaxerxes telling Rover to become a toy, mm -hmm. which obviously is what happens. It's just like every spell is something that you like physically engage with. And I don't know. I find that, I find that really interesting. I wish I'd read this before we had our episode about magic. Cause mm -hmm. I think that's. Yeah. No, this tactile sense of things. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not, it's obviously not systematic. It's just simply Tolkien no. just playing around lines, but it's a great image and it has yeah. that sense of, you know, this is again. There's no way. There's certainly no way she could have known. Uh, but and there, it's not that there are other writers in this. But in the same way that uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Ursi wizards are essentially, you know, skilled skilled workers with their tools. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the sense here. Some 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 of these wizards are clearly better at it than others. Yeah. And, yeah. and yes, the uh, the the whole the whole Soriana saying the performance review aspect and dealing with being a public official. Here's another one of my favorite bits: when the ocean people start complaining. <laughs> Let's see now; these are, these are so great. Um, yeah, the the complaints had come in by post. Complaints with a capital C, of course. Yep. Yeah. Of course, as you can imagine, all kinds of things go wrong in the sea that not even the best Pam in the ocean could prevent, and some of which he's not even supposed to have anything to do with. And then he describes all sorts of like disasters and things. 
things that happen. The mere folk have always put up with all this, but not without complaining. They liked complaining. They used, of course, to write letters to the Weekly Weed, the Mermail, and Ocean Notions. Ocean Notions. Ocean Notions <laughs> made me laugh so hard. Yeah, so it's so... It's so silly, but it's so perfect. It really is. And to continue, they had a pa- but they had a Pam now, and they wrote to him as well and blamed him for everything. Even if they got their tails nipped by their own pet lobsters, they said his magic was inadequate, as it sometimes was, and that his salary ought to be reduced, which was true but rude. And it was too big for his boots, which was also near the mark. They should have had slippers. He was too lazy to wear boots very often. And they said lots besides to worry Artaxerxes every morning, and especially on Mondays. Dude, like that idea of like Monday is always the the like it's it's so relevant still today. Like poor Artaxerxes Artaxerxes getting like probably the Sunday scaries because of all the complaints that are about to flood on on Monday. It's it's just very relatable. Also, the physical aspect of the magic is really Mm -hmm. interesting to me. It Mm -hmm. it, you know being focused on objects, uh, especially when you compare to you know like the elves themselves and in the in later writings which are not magical in and of themselves, but I guess sort of more in tune with the natural world and therefore better able to manipulate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it is interesting to think about, like, it's not an opposing view, but I think it might be kind of a evolution, I guess, in in how one thinks about magic or just like, you know, here is how I think about magic in in this world, Mm -hmm. in a world that is much more like our own versus one that is not well i think we talked about this in the episode about magic which you know go listen to it if you haven't listened to it um <laughs> which is I, it, it seemed like his ideas about what magic is is in, in all of his work mm-hmm. evolved over the course of his life mm-hmm. where in the initial very early writings it's kind of like fairy tale magic like oh you say a spell and it mm-hmm. happens and right. then it becomes magic is an art Mm-hmm. Like you make something that is magical, you are not casting a spell exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that still happens, and then it from there it turns into the elves having power over the natural world because they're so in tune with it, and mm-hmm. they're they're just like what they're able to do is just like achieve their visions the way they want to, which looks magical to humans because n- nothing is ever as good right. in our, as it is in our imaginations, that right. kind of thing. So, and this I think is fairly early in that on that continuum where it's like people are still saying spells and stuff, and it's still kind of fairy tale ish. But it's moving into the the art phase of it, yeah, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. There's um, this is something as well, slightly shifting gear in terms of you could say magic, but also the the ties to the wider, the wider legendary and the wider work and all that. Mm-hmm. Because again, you know, the, the Mister Bliss is you know maybe not not uniquely like this, but you know, it really does. You know, it it almost is almost as thoroughly a divorce from, and yet you still have Gamgees and Buffers. So it's sort of like you know, there's still ties in. Whereas Roverandum very explicitly. Is touching on uh, is touching on the imaginative world um, as it is. I mean, it's supposed to be our modern day, you know, the modern day world, you know, England, nineteen twenties, given the references and all that. And yet, it's a flat Earth. But there is the whole sequence where Ewan, the whale, takes a takes a referendum to go see essentially Valinor from from mm, the sea. Yeah, yeah. Got had to work that in there. Had to work that in there. That made that made me sad in a bizarre way because mm-hmm. I was all I could think when I read it was like if I had read this when I was a kid, that moment would have been so incredible for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if I had no other context 
for Tolkien. Maybe if I had read The Hobbit, but that mm-hmm. was it, which mm-hmm. would have been at that time all I had read mm-hmm. when Rubber Random you know, came out. It would have <laughs> activated so many little neurons. Mm-hmm. Like, it would mm-hmm. have been so powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool now, but it's more like, oh, yeah, there's Valinor. Like, I re- it's making a cameo. I recognize it. <laughs> and it's fun. But I, th- I think as a kid with no other experience of Tolkien reading that, that mm-hmm. would have been like the moment where I really fell in love with the book. Mm. And I didn't have mm. that moment as an adult because I already mm. <laughs> fell yeah. in love with Tolkien. There's right. no mystery, no... Yeah. Right. So no. having, yeah, yeah, that lack of mystery in that moment, I, like, I recognized what I was missing mm-hmm. by not reading this in 1998. Yeah. But it is a lovely touch. I mean, you do get, it's it's nice because the names aren't given at least directly, Elven Home, etc. Yeah. and all that. It's pretty but clear as to what it is. what it is. Right. So There's something lovely. about yeah. it that just is, it, like, the word Elven Home, it's just activate, it, it does activate something very deep and, yeah. like, say more right now. Yeah, I need to. What? What do you? Well, hold on. Let's yeah. go back. Let's tell me. Tell me more. And yeah. there is no more. You know. Well, I like, had that moment around that age reading The Hobbit when he yeah. talks about how the Wood Elves did not go to fairy in the West the way the mm. High yeah. Elves and the Deep Elves yeah. and the Sea Elves did. And I was like, Oh my God, what's going on there? That is so cool. I need to know more. Right? Say more about that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that would have been, it would have been a moment like that in Real Random, but I didn't get that. Anyway, so <laughs> nostalgia for a thing that never happened. <laughs> There's a German word for that, isn't there? So, yes. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, and the, the, the character of Ewan is great because uh, Ewan appears uh, briefly, if I remember right, in the Book of Lost Tales uh, and is certainly sketched out with Tolkien's original oh, map of Middle Earth. Familiar? Yeah. The mm. middle of, original map of Middle Earth actually includes Ewan swimming around uh, uh, under the deep waves and things like that as just as like the one living thing shown on that map. So it's sort of like, ah, hey, so it's interesting to see that. But that also ties in, speaking of Book of Lost Tales, the sort of after effect and the idea that, you know, the 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 Cottage of Lost Play, where the kids come in their dreams, which forms the basis of the story, is very much, again, that is the other big element carried over here um, with the uh, with the dream the dream world uh, on the dark side of the moon and where Rover meets, uh, he meets brother number two, as uh, Michael is termed in this one. His former owner. And 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 I think that's that 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 is that's a really lovely moment. I mean, you know, it, for for you know, when Tolkien nails sentiment in a way that is not gooey sticky, but instead just sort of like, you know, a sense of loss. He's really good at mm-hmm. sentimentality threaded through with loss, and I think that's the yeah. sense here, too, is that, you know, there's the joy of sort of like, oh, there you are, I found you again, and then and then, again, arbitrariness, boom, all of a sudden, yeah, he numbers two gone, he woke up. Yeah, I would have, I almost, I might have liked the book more, actually, if that had been their last encounter, where mm. they promised mm. to meet up again, mm. and then it never happens. And, like, spoilers for this book, I mean, they do meet yeah, up again, yeah, and it's yeah, very, yeah. they're very happy together, <laughs> Rover has grown up more yeah. like he's a more mature character. The boy, I, it's fine with that, I guess. I don't know. But it's like having that moment of connection on the dark side of the moon mm-hmm. in this place that is very like dangerous to get to. It's mm-hmm. it's very, very beautiful as it is. And then having them meet up in real life is like, it's fine. <laughs> but, you know, this is it's my happy. storytelling preferences, I guess. It's it would have nice. been a little more bittersweet. Yeah, which is a nice, flavor that Jared. I love in literature. <laughs> so 
But it's good. Like, I really, again, I loved Overandom. This is not a criticism. It's just like, I might have been. A personal preference. A little personal preference. Yeah. I, I take it you're one for the happy ending there, Oriana. So. Yeah, I bet as a kid, uh, pro- you know, probably around 11 or 12, Jared, I bet I, I would also be like, I think actually. That, uh, <laughs> but now I'm Is just that like. Is how I sound to you? <laughs> no, no, that's me. That's me. That's my, that's my snotty tween voice. <laughs> Yeah. Um, just want to make that clear. My snotty tween voice uh, and how I would have said that. Yeah, but now I'm just like, yeah, I don't want subtlety. I don't want downer endings. I just, I'm all about, th- that isn't actually true, but I do, I do enjoy a happy ending now yeah. much more than I used to. I think part of, for me, why it, it feels like it should have ended the way that I would have preferred it on mm. is that because it is Tolkien. And even in The Hobbit, which is children's literature, there is an ending that is, it's happy, he's back home, but he has lost a lot of what makes his home home for him. Mm-hmm. And even though it's like he can afford silk waistcoats and nice tobacco, and he's like, he's fine. He's not unhappy or anything. There is something has irrevocably changed. Right. There is an element that is missing from this happy ending. And it's the same in Lord of the Rings, where it is a happy ending, but it is also incredibly sad. And I was, ex- I, because it's Tolkien, I was kind of unconsciously expecting that kind of ending, where the boy and the dog never meet up again. Mm. As a children's author, he's totally capable of doing that and he didn't and i I, that's definitely a conscious choice on his part because it's an ending he did a lot Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah that's part of again that's part of why i was like this is gonna it's gonna happen this way this is gonna be so beautiful this illusory encounter in a garden on the moon is the last they see of each other that's so perfect yes and then it doesn't happen so Oh, well, yeah, no, I, both. I, I I agree with both of you. <laughs> this is yeah. what it comes down to. It could it could have gone either way. Um, the optimist in me, which is always there, the Mister Bounce is very much happy with the happy ending. But I also like how the ending is. I like how it's not just a happy ending. You get the whole thing where he's talking to this grandma, and the grandma's like, "So what is it now? What is it? What happened?" You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which like it. feels it feels like a conversation that actually happened. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it is sort of like. You did what? <laughs> you know, how did this go? You know, totally would make sense to me for sure. Your imagination, how cute. <laughs> yeah. There, there. So it is when you're trying to follow along with a young child telling you a story and you're yeah. like, uh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> go back again. Or you just <laughs> nod and smile. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You just have to what was that about the moon? Yeah. And we went where? So, but, uh, but yeah, no. And it, and again, again, also the other illustrations, the, the color illustration that's on the cover of Rand oh, here of the, uh, of yes. the Mer Kingdom. That's another one to really yes. stand out. Mm-hmm. It is just gorgeous. And both that and the, uh, the ink one of the, uh, of the, uh, the white dragon, all that. I like how both of them, the background mountains or sea peaks in this one just sort of fade away into the mm-hmm. distance. Uh, he does that in both of them. It's kind of an underrated thing. It really, adds the sense of uh, depth about both and uh, and and his his eye for color is just really really good it just uh, it's uh, that's a lot of detail i also like how it's on a, a lined piece of paper one of his old exam booklets or something yeah. somewhere yeah. and he just sort of just does this elaborate thing it's like <laughs> 
<laughs> What's on the other side of that? It's it it's it is it is kind of great. I do like the one fish that's sort of like swimming almost face on going like her yeah, and like up, yeah, and, like then, and then up in the corner you and the whale's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh it's just hanging out. It's it's wonderful stuff. You know, it's 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 yeah, I mean and thinking about maybe to wrap up, I mean, thinking about Tolkien as a children's writer is interesting because I I sort of hinted at this at the start of the introduction too often. I mean, this has been the case ever since Edwin Wilson's, you know, slam on Tolkien back in the mid fifties. But yeah. uh, the, uh, the idea is sort of like, Oh, all you're doing is drawing stuff for kids and things like that. So, and it's sort of like, well, that's a dumb judgment one, yeah. but, uh, but kids it, it, don't deserve great literature. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's just sort of like, I mean, that's been sort of a thing that sort of hangs over, sort of hangs over the head of Tolkien and a lot of uh, other things since. And, you know, and sometimes you can sort of overreact to that. This is just as good as X and sort of like, well, you know, sometimes your examples you pull out maybe aren't as good as something else, but uh, but but for me, it just sort of shows that uh, this uh, there's this real resistance that I think really has changed with time. I think now over the past few decades that uh, you know it's sort of like ah, only kids read that. It's more sort of like uh, uh, hey, you know, you know, people can read it on kids so, of all age. Yeah, you know, it's just sort of like the idea that you know good literature you know still works on very deep levels uh, in many different ways even if it's supposed to be theoretically you know written for a kid's audience and uh, and I think that's something that uh, you know the that is a potent quote unquote legitimate form of of like critical response and eh, only kids will like it sort of like you know out the window and I think we can more look at something like these shorter works and the other ones that we've talked about over the past is sort of like this is him when he was a young father when he had young kids this is kind of naturally what he wrote and did uh, mm-hmm. often stuff. You know, he didn't really, he didn't really come back to this in later years. The closest he would have done would have been when he put together the, uh, the Tom Bombadil, uh, poetry collection. And even that was mm. more just sort of like a combination of accumulation and other things like that. So it's just interesting to reflect on really. Um, you know, there's one could say more, I suppose, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe that's kind of, uh, where I will, maybe I will just sort of wrap up on that. Uh, these are, these are interesting works. Uh, yeah, Mr. Bliss, if you find it, enjoy it and treat it with a 20 second, 20, 20 seconds, 20 minutes at most. You'll need to sort of go through it all. Rule for random, though, yeah, if you can find that, stick with that. That one, that one I think has some, that's, that surprised even me looking at it again. And I think I'll end there. Okay, well, we are looking ahead to our next episode. It is Oriana's choice of topic. Oriana, what are we going to talk about next time? Well, and uh, as usual, I have chosen a character study. Hey. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Gollum. Oh, Ooh. it had to happen. Yeah. It had yeah. to happen. That was on my Just, list of suggestions oh, that I was no. going to get to at some point. No, not like for next to like, this would be cool. So I'm glad <laughs> that we're on the same wavelength here. Yeah, talking yeah. about the Two Towers, the the Peter Jackson film, really, I was like, we got to we gotta really dig into this guy because there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot there. So Absolutely. Yeah. My precious. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, so everyone get your best uh, imitation on, depending on which variant or version you like to imitate the more. <laughs> so, because there are a number right now. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, the most compelling character, perhaps, of them all. But uh, mm-hmm. we, we will we will have our thoughts. That'll be good. So, okay, so that'll be our next episode. Um, well, wrapping up here, uh, again, the old intro is uh, currently on hold. Well, our old outro, I should say. We'll figure that out. <laughs> but, uh, but as usual, you know, <laughs> 
where to find us, Megaphonic FM slash by the bywater. And uh, of course, just subscribe through favorite podcast services, etc. And you can find us on social media scattered hither and yon, but we've got links around and <laughs> things like that. Or uh, I'm on Mastodon all too much now in a good way. Um, let's see. Uh, I, Jared, you're still predominantly on Twitter and Oriana, yeah. you're mostly Mastodon at this point or not? Or? No, I've like kind of a band. I, I, I don't check Mastodon much anymore. I've really been enjoying just being in various discords. So I do like recommend like if you have a few bucks a month to, to do the megaphonic Patreon, it's a really fun discord. It's yeah. It's, yeah. Agreed. A pretty chill it's a great community. community. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's uh, not only our host, we just have a number of listeners there. It's a good way to chat. We certainly welcome more folks in. And, hey, if you've been listening to us for almost four years now and you haven't had a chance to talk with us, come on board. It's good fun. Yeah, We're so yeah. funny on Discord. We're amazing. We're truly grandiose. <laughs> yeah. so, and, and it is a chance to see us react in real time as, like, you know, random bits or memes or things come up, of which there are many, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and more things besides. So, so do look for us where you do. So, in any event, uh, that is going to be it for now. We will see you next month looking forward to it as always you can always uh contact us gosh why have i forgotten our email it's by the bywater gmail.com yes that's it <laughs> so uh, you can always do that too so until then we will talk to you next time see ya <laughs>